0: Trending news right now.
1: Let's look at what's happened in the world of social media. Jamie Mighty, researcher and analyst, uh, social commentator also joining us. How are you today, Jamie? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for making time. Always great catching up.
0: Yeah, good to catch up with you too.
1: What are you looking forward to this week? Any any plans in terms of what uh, is a highlight in your life?
0: No, no. My life is very much uh, ordinary and boring.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) That's fine. I think boring is good. It keeps you away from trouble and it saves money. So that's fine. Yes. All right. So today we start with hashtag Basani Baloi, uh, Public Protector COO, who says uh, she was ordered to shred draft report on the CR 17 funding. And uh, she was testifying, uh, also saying that she was shocked at everything that was happening there in the office of the Public Protector, Busisiwem Kwebane. Tell us more.
0: Well, I mean, um, those revelations, as you've said, uh, were part of um, the ongoing impeachment proceedings which are facing the public protector. And um, while I haven't been following them very closely, um, it seems as if, you know, she's suggesting that the public protector had a specific agenda against Zora Maposa. Um, having said that, though, the the whole process, in and of itself, has been. Uh, you know, mired in somewhat in terms of bias and you know problematic testimony from people who were reading statements and then saying that the the stuff in the statements was not theirs. Although this does seem very much to be something that um, indicates a bias on the on the side of the public protector. And if you recall, the judgment against her actually found that she was overextending herself in considering these particular issues. And some of the issues that she had mentioned there were issues of money laundering, and people then said, look, that is beyond your ambit. And in fact, these particular uh, issues were not necessarily within your domain. You started off looking at BUSASA, and now you are looking at campaign finances. You have overextended yourself. Um, So I'm, I'm curious to hear what will be the responses, from her representation, and uh, if she does uh, give testimony herself, what will be her particular responses to some of these things as they are put to her? But um, this particular process is one that has become um, whether you, uh, if you're on social media or in those spaces, you either look at it on one side as the public protector can do no wrong, or you look at it on the other side to say, the chairperson and some of the lines of questioning have um, been problematic and some witnesses have been coached, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. it's one of those things which is happening at a very unfortunate time in the political um, you know, uh, moment in South Africa where really we're going up to the ANC conference and you can see that it's beginning to become a silly season almost in terms of the amount of uh, political theatrics that are occurring. The challenge that exists here is that institutions, which are supposed to be beyond um, the fray of politics, are now becoming corroded by factional politics uh, of the ANC. If you think about all of these things that are happening now, you've got the impeachment proceeding of the public protector, you've got an appeal that is being made by the Western Cape Judge, uh, uh, Western Cape Judge President John Clark. You've got um, the minister of finance who's accused of, um, you know, groping a woman uh, in a massage session. You've got the president who's accused of having money in his sofas improperly. All of these things undermine institutions. Mm-hmm. And after those people leave, those institutions, including the NPA, which has, you know, been sending. The police instructions which are a little bit um, extraordinary considering that usually um, some of the allegations for example with the Minister of Finance would have been dealt with in uh, you know um, more expeditiously that he would have been charged he would have appeared before a judge and got on his court date but you we are seeing like this pattern of, of events which no matter where you're looking puts a question mark on the institutions themselves to say is this NPA actually independent Is this parliamentary committee independent? Is the public protector independent? Is the president actually also beyond reproach? Hold hold it on that
1: note of that question, because we will try and unpack that after this. We need to just take a short break and we'll continue on this. Hashtag Basani Baloyi. We'll continue on that trending topic with Jamie Mighty.
0: Trending news right now.
1: At 12 minutes past four, we continue then looking at what's happened in the world of social media, the last 24 hours, that is, on this terrific Tuesday. Jamie Mighty, researcher, analyst, and social commentator, joining us. On that question then that we broke on uh, of how independent these offices of influencing each other are, Jamie, mm. uh, if if uh, uh, Basani Baloi is saying that she was fired without basis and she believes that she was part of a, a purge by Mkwebane, but yet, uh, she's currently Deputy Director General in the Gauteng Health Department. Going from one uh, public service space to another, how independent are these offices of influencing each other? Is that maybe a, a lead into that question that you are asking?
0: Yeah, I think that that's also showing us that some of these positions, you know, if you think about where people land, it can also show you some of their political connections, some of their affiliations. And it, 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 it's, it's a bit worrying because. As much as these things are being played out in the courts, and, and we know, of course, that um, you know, Balo is actually now going to um, the, the 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 High Court to actually. Um, let me just make sure I have my facts right here. She she received a go ahead from the Constitutional Court mm-hmm. for her her case against the Public Protector to be heard anew. Um, this was after uh, the High Court ruling that you know it didn't have jurisdiction to hear that particular matter. And now that matter will have uh, to, to go back and be heard by the courts and then it be um, uh, uh, evaluated either at the high court or the labor court whether or not she was actually dismissed uh, wrongfully and if indeed there was a purge. Um, so that's still something that needs to be determined by um you know, the legal system. But then when you also then look at where people land up, it does sometimes say, oh, okay, you're so well-connected that you were able to get this job here in this department where we found out that there were PPE tenders that were fraudulent and people were killed when they were trying to pursue the money, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, connecting the dots I've always found to be bad journalism, so I don't want to do it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think when we think about what does this mean for the democracy, When you have such public mistrust in institutions and you have weak rule of law, anything that actually exacerbates that mistrust leads to people not believing in the system and then operating outside of the system, either doing deals outside of the system or seeking to get justice themselves. And this is what leads to vigilante action. This is what leads to wildcat protests. This is what leads to people you know, creating a parallel system from the state. And what happens over time is that the more and more people opt out of um, the the system as, as, as it is run by a centralized state, the more difficult it is to get the quality of law and order that you want in a society.
1: Talking of protests, let's move to a hashtag national shutdown. General Secretary Zewelin Zimavavi of Kosatu saying that uh, the national shutdown on, that's planned for Wednesday, the twenty-fourth of August, it must be seen as the beginning of mobilisation of the working class and not as an isolated incident.
0: Yeah, so we we all know that uh, Kosatu and SAFTU have called for this, um, you know, national shutdown. And some people are calling it a stay away to send a message about the cost of living and to underscore that workers are actually struggling to keep up with the various costs that have come with uh, 2022. As we all know, you know, the price of food has gone up, the price of cooking oil has gone up, the price of taxes has gone up, because of the, bri- the price of driving has gone up. All of these things have not re- really been adequately addressed by the government. And, you know, workers are feeling the pinch. So cost of living has become a buzzword around the world. And in fact, right now, the United Kingdom, the railways are on strike. Um, there are several other... Uh, you know industries which are contemplating strike, mm. and there's even more contemplation of a national strike. So the mood around the global worker movement is that the governments are not doing enough for the poorest, and they're not doing enough for the working class to actually protect them from the consequences of basically, you know, the, the fallout of COVID, but also now the consequences of this war in Ukraine, which has exacerbated a variety of Of costs, so this is where we are right now, and it remains to be seen whether or not there will be, you know, a massive response to this. Because I'm seeing on social media that it's getting politicized in different ways, you know, and um, that that has killed previous uh, calls for a mass protest. In fact, the last one that was really uh, a national mass protest was the one against Jacob Zuma. And on those, on, on that protest, the workers were actually given a day off mm. by most of the big companies, if you recall. And uh, this is not looking like it's going to happen. So it's going to be critical to see whether an organization like the EFF, which is holding a press conference today, if I'm not mistaken, at, at midday, we'll also back that kind of a call, because if you have Kosatu and SAFTU and the EFF um, you know, saying that they're all going to take to the streets, what that could mean is that there could be this uh, at least left-wing uh, protest against the current administration, and that could pick up traction. Um, so, so that's where things stand. It doesn't look like there's universal support, but the call in and of itself for a national shutdown is not new. Earlier in the year, you know, there were other movements online calling for a national shutdown, and that, too, also got politicized. I think at some point it was associated with put South Africans first, mm. and then they said that, no, EFF is trying to steal our thing, and then the EFF said, okay, we're not coming to your thing anymore. And then it just became this um, conversation online. However, it's important to note when the sentiment like this is widespread and keeps recurring, it's only a matter of time before there is some kind of... Uh, Protest action that really spills out into the streets. We've seen in many countries that there've been protests. I mean, Sri Lanka is a very popular example because that actually led to the, you know, removal of the president and his compound being raided and people swimming in his swimming pool and cooking in his kitchen. And and obviously, it's not going to be anything to that effect. But here, but the national calls uh, around the world for protest, especially considering the high cost of living are actually escalating, and I'm sure that many South Africans right now are feeling like that's what they need, an outlet to express their dissatisfaction with the economic conditions.
1: And you mentioned something, a repeat of these national shutdowns, and my question then is what I'm wondering is if we have repeats of these uh, movements and protests do they yield any positive result? Do they result in something that actually brings about change? Because why would we need to repeat these calls? I mean, this particular one being initiated by the South African Federation of Trade Unions and uh, all unions being asked to join. But uh, Vavi saying that only a handful have agreed, citing NUMSA, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, as indicating that they can't afford to take part on this uh, type of thing. So, I don't know if the middle class is stuck between a a rock and a hard place on this, because which cause and move do you choose? To stand against the high cost of living by also, you know, sort of shooting yourself in the foot, taking money away from you, or saying that I'm not going to to make any stand on the high cost of living or electricity tariffs or fuel rises because I I don't want to lose out on that day or those two days of work, which I won't get paid for if I don't show up.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's tricky, but you know the middle class actually is one of the the groups in this particular situation which is a little bit buffed from this because they can work from home, you know, they so can show solidarity from home mm. and tweet. Um, so, so I, I I do think though that um, the question about do these kind of protest work is also relative to when and and how they occur. And which is why there's a lot of political pushback um, from different uh, political interests because it it, it is in the interest of some groups to prevent this particular protest from happening because it could actually lead to the demise of the president, etc. Because once a protest starts and it has a mass appeal, it it generally starts becoming a criticism of the administration. And when an administration is mired in controversy and unresolved issues, such as some of the issues we spoke about earlier, it can then become something which becomes like a no let's just go to um union buildings and demand that this person step down et cetera, et cetera. so um in 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 the context now of what what should we all think about outcomes from protests sometimes you do have good outcomes from a protest for example um when the fees must reform movement happened in 2015 they were able to get a partial victory of fees being frozen for a, a variety a number of years after that and also to get easier access to universities because the following year, if you owed money, they didn't prevent you from registering, they allowed you to register. And in and of itself, that was like, um, and and for the coming years after that, it was in and of itself, some kind of a university funded student loan because people would get there and say, oh yeah, I owe 100,000, let me sign an acknowledgement of debt and let me register. And they would be able to register and access residence and all of that stuff. Some of those people are still sitting with that debt but they were able, at least at that point, to continue their education and complete it. So that's an example of a partial success. However, if you look at issues such as gender-based violence, where there's been marches, there's been protests, there was a women's march, I think, that was held um, in Pretoria, and I think many people can agree that there's not really been much of an outcome from that. Politically, however... At this time of the year, considering the, you know, factional nature of ANC issues, considering the heat on the president and considering just the history, you know, um, when when Thabo Beggy had removed um, Jacob Zuma in 2007 in the build up to uh, Boloquan, I think it was, we saw a lot of public noise and and undermining of his status and his gravitas as the president. And when he went to conference, you could definitely see that the mood had shifted against him. And so part of this could be a build-up against uh, President Tsing Ramaphosa from the streets to say, listen, you can put this guy, but if everyone is pushing against him, how secure will he be? Um, next year, how secure will, be, will he be going up to 2024? And we've seen, of course, that um, you know powerful provinces such as wazulu Natal have appointed uh, you know leadership which is not necessarily pro Ramaphosa. So as much as this is about cost of living, there are also a lot of political movements under the, the, the surface. And if you recall, Cyril Mavavi was uh, part and parcel, and so was Julius Malema of actually leading the campaign against Thabo
1: Okay, let's end on a WhatsApp from Anonymous who says, I MP members of parliament uh, planning a shutdown to benefit with our bloodshed. Let them do it themselves. MP Parliamentaries don't care about people of South Africa. MPs have generator. They don't pay bills. They get everything for free. As a South African citizen, I say no to the shutdown. South Africa won't be Zimbabwe because of MPs. I thank you there. Let's leave it on that note on that. Moving to the U.S. Then Dr. Anthony Fauci, the President Biden's chief medical advisor and the U.S. government's infectious disease expert, is saying he's going to resign in December. He's stepping down.
0: Yeah, well, I think Fauci has has, has, has reached as far as he can get in terms of credibility in the the global stage, and this may be the the best thing for him.
1: Yeah, 54 Um, years of service, I mean, in the U.S. That's enough, I think.
0: Yeah, it's enough. And, in fact, he's, he's been one of the most powerful people in global healthcare because he used to control a lot of access to research funding. So, um, if you wanted research funding for certain communicable diseases, you, you would you would then generally globally have to get approval from Fauci because he was con- controlling the American funds, which would be dispersed to that. But I think when you think about where we are right now with COVID-19, which became his uh, brand, so to speak, mm. uh, because he was involved in a lot of, um, you know. The debates and the, um, you know, the treatment options, even for HIV and AIDS early on, he preferred uh, some kind of a vaccine as opposed to ARV treatment, which also slowed down the process to a degree because he's always had this idea that vaccines are better than, you know, pills, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's part of his legacy, and he used to fight uh, with some of the, the, the gay community groups in America in the 80s uh, about HIV treatment and about funding for the research. And uh, as, as that wasn't as much of a focus in America, of course, because they didn't get hit uh, by, um, you know, HIV and AIDS as hard as the rest of the world. And if you remember that whole fight about um, how to access ARVs and treatment action campaign and to fight and... Um, a lot of activists set to fight globally to get people to be able to get generic drugs. He was involved in that. Bill Gates was involved in that, and it was just like a, you know a, a scandal that was quite quickly forgotten as soon as we were able to get the ARVs for cheap. Mm. But I think coming now to COVID-19, as much as he provided leadership, and as much as he was able to push back against a lot of conspiracy theories and uh, you know bad science being pushed by people who are anti-vax. The, the challenge that came for him and some of the options that they chose, lockdown, you know, mandatory vaccines, et cetera. After we started going into Omicron mm. and, you know, the variants of Omicron, some of their positions became undermined by the transmissibility of the disease you know, among the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I think now they are reporting in the hospitals that 50-50 of the people who are dying uh, from COVID-19 are dying regardless of whether they were vaccinated or boosted or whatever the case may be, because it's mostly elderly people who are actually being affected by this. And as we know, the world is moving away from mask mandates and going back into, um, you know, a, a general way of life. And I think now in America, they're also recommending... That you don't have to keep six feet away etc so you know it, it does harm your legacy a little bit when a lot of the interventions that you stood for are no longer widely accepted so i think this is just a dignified way mm. for him to leave that conversation so that you know the science becomes depoliticized again it will be very dangerous for somebody who has a, a brand which is no longer universally accepted to be leading the discussion when they're talking about monkeypox, et cetera, et cetera, because now people will say, I oh, know that's what you said about COVID, that's what you said about this, that's what you said about this, and it didn't turn out. So I think at this particular time, the legitimacy of his brand is no longer 100%, and as a result of that, this may be the best strategic time for him to go. But I mean, it's critical to point out that a lot of the things that he was advocating for early on where the science at the time and what was their understanding of the science at the time. It's just that Omicron changed a lot of things. And unfortunately for him, other people could then come and say, but we told you about this guy. But a lot of that foundational science was correct.
1: Well, that's the thing. Somebody had to have the fingers pointed at them. And as you say, I mean, there was so much rapidly changing within uh, research Hmm. in the space of COVID-19. But his efforts to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we will remember them in a positive way. I think now we know better after the up and down. I mean, serving under seven presidents as advisor, we can't take that away from the immunologist. But also, uh, there were death threats that he received because of Mm. uh, all the up and down we talk about when people, you know, things are going really bad. We want someone to blame. And he endured criticism from uh, Donald Trump around the Mm. vaccinations issue. He is saying, though, that his resignation is not due to to those uh, death threats or any negativity he received. You believe that?
0: Well, I don't think that's 100 percent because, you know, as much as we, we can say everything that you've just said about him, American politics are so very, um, what what can we say? They're so bitterly divided at this particular point. Mm. So while one side is praising him, the other side is, is really uh, attacking him. And the unfortunate thing that happened, and I think if it could be done again, it would have been preferable for Fauci not to become the public uh, spokesperson. to get politicized and that is the most regrettable thing that has happened here because science has now become a political football and ideally you don't want science to become a political football you want the medical experts to give the advice and uh, let those government officials be the ones who take the rep for it and basically scientists must just write a statement but when they become part of the you know television shows and then they start taking all of these interviews and giving political opinions and assessing leadership You know, because sometimes he would make some scathing comments about Donald Trump. All of that became part of the politics of it. So I don't think it's so much the death threats that he's living as a result of, but I think because of the fact that now. Because of the way COVID-19 is being managed and the way his brand is polarizing in America, they actually need to have a new person who can depoliticize the science. Otherwise, that particular office is going to remain forever political, and it's going to become difficult when there are future pandemics or future uh, public health um, you know situations which need everyone in society to participate and cooperate, because right now you basically have a divided America on the basis of where they stand on this particular vaccine, and it's not sustainable to have somebody in that institution, um, you know, be a partisan figure, even if that was not his intention.
1: Talking about divisions, let's bring it back home. Uh, speaking about Big Zulu, the hip-hop artist who's caused a stir <laughs> on social media. So this after he dropped a, a, a song where he's dissing or, or speaking negatively about some hip-hop artists. The top ones, actually, in uh, yeah. South Africa implicated is A.K.A., uh, K.O., Kaspar Novest, M.T., Nasty C., Stoji T., yeah. all the good ones.
0: Wh- what do you make of this <laughs> diss track? Well, you know, I think it, it's actually overall uh, good for hip-hop because hip-hop is built on a culture of competitiveness. It's built on a culture of diss tracks. And I think it's, at some point, uh, Kendrick Lamar was part of a song that actually um, challenged all of his peers. I think it was Controller or something like that. Mm. And uh, at the time, a lot of people were surprised, but they're like, these are your buddies. Why are you now challenging Drake and j cole and all of that is because he was trying to remind everybody that look there is a competitive spirit in this thing and we must all compete to improve the quality of the genre i think what has happened in in south african hip-hop is part of that competitiveness has actually fallen away and part of the innovation has fallen away so some of the criticisms he gave were actually quite correct and necessary to say look you have now you know these big brands such as aka who basically tweet but um haven't had a nationwide hit in a very long time. You know, for him to then challenge, you know, and say, look, Casper, you also are saying that you are the one who's going to save hip-hop or hip-hop is dead when you say so, but you also don't do so well. And KO, you haven't been hot for a while. And then KO obviously came back with his own reply, which some people prefer. Um, I'm still 50-50 on which one I prefer between the two um, diss tracks, but that's good, because now what it means is that hundreds of thousands of people are going to listen to the genre of hip-hop again to get a new appreciation for all of these artists to go back to their old catalogues, to listen to whether, is this criticism there? Has this guy fallen off? Is this guy there? But I think one of the big challenges that exists for South African hip-hop is that there was a factional uh, fight with the Afrobeats community. Mm. And I think they need to make peace with the Afrobeats community because the sound from Africa that is being consumed by the bigger audience is either I'm a piano and we've seen um, they're having a, a moment, even globally, where their music is being played. We've seen um, that house music, of course, is always going to have an audience in Europe. But the other sound that is being consumed globally, which links somewhat to hip hop, is Afrobeats. But if you recall the last time that boy tried to come to South Africa, there was a bit of a division between the AKAs and Burner Boy, and that kind of ended up having some darker undertones. And then Burner Boy then went on to become this massive global artist, winning Grammys, et cetera, et cetera. And Afrobeats is actually an ascending music genre, which is crossing over into global charts. If you go to the London um, charts or the New York charts or the Atlanta charts, you'll find names such as Burner Boy, Fire Boy, Thames, Wizkid, But if we want to then have a moment again, it has to come with those collaborations. I think one of the things we underplay is how um, Africanized South African hip-hop was a few years ago. They were doing performances with all manner of artists, and their music was being consumed beyond the borders of South Africa. And I think the resurgence of South African hip-hop will not be complete uh, without those kind of mediation mm. being done. You can't and be in silos, absolutely.
1: Because we are on the mm-hmm. same continent, and I agree with you. I think those dark undertones need to be absolutely avoided. There's healthy competition that we need, but uh, it shouldn't get too, too, too dark undertones. And maybe also the question that the artists should be asking themselves is, this competition that's within the hip-hop industry and as a legacy, something that's always been, do we mm. keep it within the the industry or do we keep it within hip-hop? Uh, and do we make sure that it doesn't spill over to other spaces and other genres then? Maybe that's the main question they should yeah, ask. I
0: think they must beef with the genres now. They must beef with everything so that it becomes, you know, because they need to, they, the, the value of beef is that it brings attention, uh, you know, but I think one thing I've always appreciated is that there's never been a push for violence in our beef. And I think as long as it stays away yeah. from those kind of, um, you know, themes, were fine because we we do know that we you know we have so many uh, this gang culture in the Western Cape there are undercurrents uh, you know even in our societies of violence but the music has never really tried to become gangster rap, et cetera, et cetera. And as long as we stay away from that, I think even if they say we're beefing with Amapiano, even if they say they're beefing with, you know, Gom or whatever, I think all of that creates this this healthy competition. But the other side that they need to think about is innovating the music, yeah. you know, because part of what has happened is that they've been gatekeepers We keep hearing from the same seven names, and there are so many people who, uh, participating in RAP but haven't been able to access the mainstream platforms or the large platforms and part of that has been gatekeeping by the big seven names and you can't innovate whilst you're blocking everyone. Mm, open the industry a bit the there. Mm-hmm. Let's leave it
1: exactly. on that note. Yeah, I think Tupac and Biggie needed to happen only once in our lifetime in the next lifetimes yeah. forever. It can't go back.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh,
1: let's leave it there. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us and hoping yeah. you have the, a great rest of the week. Jamie, mighty researcher and analyst and social commentator discussing trending news.